All right, if you'll take your Bible and open to Ephesians chapter 6, actually. Uh, It's such a privilege to be able to open up God's Word, and we really come to the Bible today in faith. This is God's Word, and in His grace, He has uh, given us what we need to know to live a life that honors Him. And so I'm thankful. I hope you are thankful as well. It's Father's Day, obviously, and I'm a dad. And uh, some of you are dads, and uh, some of you are parents, and some of you uh, will be parents, and most of you have parents, I'm guessing. And uh, so I want to talk with you a little bit about being a a parent. And I don't know if I'll do this every year, but it's important to talk about being a parent. If you are one, if you are not one, it it is important. And today, uh, specifically, I guess, I want to talk with you about Uh, being a dad. I'll always remember when I uh, first became a dad, which actually feels like a long time ago now. It's sort of almost uh, hard to remember when was I ever not a a dad. But at the same time, I can still remember our first baby being born, uh, maybe because we had been waiting and praying for that moment. Uh, To us, it felt like a long time. Now I realize we were like babies, 25 years old, but it felt like we were praying uh, for that moment for a long time because we were young and uh, we were told that we weren't going to be able to have children. And uh, now we have uh, nine, so I want to find that doctor. But obviously, (laughs) we wanted uh, children, and so we were praying God would enable us to uh, have children. And when we first found out that Marta was going to have a baby, we were so uh, excited. But I actually didn't believe it at first. I... I, uh, I went out and bought three pregnancy tests, and it took all three to convince me. But once I was sure we really were having a baby, those nine months couldn't go fast enough. They they almost felt like nine years. And for us, it felt especially long because Marta went way past her, her due date, and it seemed like our daughter, McKenna, would never come out, and we were trying everything we could to, like, jumpstart the process. I was, like, driving over bumps real fast. <laughs> And we would go to restaurants. Olive Garden apparently has like some dressing um, that we would pour on. And I don't know why <laughs> we, were, we were young and we thought that would work. And when it finally did get started, it was a really long labor, like 36 hours. She was having a good time in there and so she didn't want to come out. And so obviously we were really excited. And uh, when it was over, we were finally holding our baby in our arms. And I remember looking at her and thinking, this is amazing. This is so amazing. That was one feeling. It's such a miracle being a parent. It's like this huge, incredible privilege, and you're looking down at this baby in your arms, and you're thanking God, and you're feeling all this joy and amazement. And yet at the same time, after all that waiting and after all that excitement, I also remember feeling a little overwhelmed and uh, excited for sure, but overwhelmed. Like, what do I do? Uh, Because being a a parent is a huge privilege, but it's also this tremendous responsibility. It's not just about me, and it's not just about this baby. It's about me, this baby, and God. If you're a, a dad, you're not a dad for yourself. And you're not even just a dad for your kids. God has given you a stewardship. He's placed you in this family to serve as his representative and act as an agent of his grace, which makes being a dad a really, really, really big deal. It's huge. It's not just about getting this baby to like you. Uh, It's not just about figuring out a way to get this baby to do what you want. 
It's about you playing this role in God's plan. And so you need to know what is your role? What are you supposed to do? Because people definitely have ideas. And they'll share them. There are all kinds of things they'll say a dad should, should be. A dad needs to be dependable. A dad needs to be a, a provider. A dad needs to, to tell good jokes. I don't think anybody says that, actually. But a, a dad needs to be, a dad needs to be, a dad needs to be. But what does God say a dad needs to do? What does he say about dads, about their importance, about their responsibility? Because that's really the question. And fortunately, the answer is not super, super complicated, actually. God keeps it pretty simple. I mean, if you uh, take the classic text on parenting in the New Testament, so what is the classic text? If you were going to turn to a passage, what passage would you go to to talk about parenting in the New Testament? Because there's actually not a lot of passages directly on parenting. There's a lot of principles, but there are not a lot of passages directly on parenting. And the main one is pretty short. And, of course, I'm talking about Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's talking about parenting. He's, he's talking about living a spirit-filled life. He, he's talking about living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's talking about putting the glory of God on display. And he's talking about parenting. And his instructions on parenting is really simple. In fact, it's only four verses. And this morning, I actually am only going to look at one. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And there is a lot in this verse and the verses around that we could talk about, but we're going to try to make this simple. And so I want you to, to notice, one, who Paul is talking to, and two, what their responsibility is. And so uh, first, I want you to notice that Paul is talking to fathers specifically, because we might expect Paul to begin by saying parents talking to both, mother and father, but he doesn't. He says fathers. And there's a couple possibilities why. It's possible that Paul's just using this word, like, generically to include fathers and mothers, like we might say guys, and yet mean both men and women. But I'm not sure that's his intention here, uh, since there is a word for parents that Paul could have used if he wanted. And we know that because he did use that word back up in verse 1 when he says, children, obey your parents. And we know he's concerned about the child's relationship with both parents because in verse 2 he tells uh, children to honor both their father and mother, which means there's kind of a switch here. When Paul says fathers, to me, this seems deliberate, at least in terms of emphasis. This is probably about emphasis. I think the reason Paul addresses fathers is not to minimize the mother's role, but instead to maximize the father's responsibility. Because if we wanted, you know, there are all kinds of passages we could go to which stress the importance of the mother's role in raising children. But Paul says fathers here because he wants fathers to feel and to step up to the special responsibility they have in raising their children for God. And I don't know, maybe, at least partially, because he knows so many fathers don't. And I'm glad here at Cornerstone so many fathers do. This is a strength. And yet it's a little unique because there are a lot of men who don't feel a responsibility. And uh, there are, I guess, maybe even more men who feel a responsibility but don't really know what their primary responsibility is, which is a problem because in the way that God designed the world to actually work, he's given fathers 
a special responsibility in raising their children. There's something specific that they need to do. And so while I know this looks kind of like a simple word at the beginning of verse 4, fathers, the truth is we need to pay attention because a father's failure to take his biblical responsibility seriously does damage. And we could prove that a number of different ways, I'm sure, like statistically. We could give some proof statistically because there are lots of studies and it doesn't take a lot of work. You can just Google to find out what the research says. And it's not just research either. You don't just need stats. If you grew up without a father or if you know someone who did, you know the significance of a father. And of course, we praise God that he can do amazing things and it is amazing. I want you to hear that. If you didn't have a father and you're moving forward in in life, that's huge. Part of the reason it feels painful is because it is painful. And you moving forward in spite of that is amazing because this is a real challenge. It is a real thing. This is a real hurt. This is not how the world is supposed to go. Fathers matter. Their actions or lack of actions have consequences. And we can say that not just because of the stats or like personal experience, but because we open up our Bible and see that children often bear the consequences of their father's sins. In Exodus 20, verse 5, for example, you might remember this verse. God says, I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And I think what that means is that sons and daughters often experience the consequences of their father's sins, even grandsons and granddaughters. And again, your children can overcome it and God can use it, but you are making it difficult for your children if you fail to fulfill the responsibility God's given you, kind of like Adam did for us, actually. We're all experiencing the consequences of our father Adam's sin right now. And so, of course, that doesn't mean children don't have a a personal responsibility for their choices. And You're not going to stand before God for your father's sins, ultimately. And it doesn't mean you have no hope. If you had a wicked father, you can be righteous. And even if you are wicked and you, your father was wicked and you experienced the consequences, even that's not the end of the the story because God in his grace provides healing and strength to sons and daughters who humbly seek him in spite of the way their fathers live. For sure, God can use that. I know people with bad dads who are really godly and make a huge impact. And I know people with great dads who are not godly. But it does mean that if you just look at the way it's supposed to work and normally does work, our actions as fathers, what we do or don't do, impacts our children's future in a big way. So fathers, you want to understand your role. First, it's important. That's why Paul says fathers. You want to do something great, You need to be faithful to the responsibility God's given you. Your role in your family matters. That's first. Fathers. Paul says fathers. That's who he's talking to. Second, what does Paul Paul tell fathers to do? Notice what Paul says our responsibility is. What he says fathers are to do and what they're not to do, which is actually where he starts, what they're not to do. If you look down at the text, you'll see Paul identifies two primary responsibilities. He writes fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, that's the first, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's the second. And so the first responsibility which Paul gives us as fathers is not to provoke our children to anger. 
Or maybe we could say, as fathers, our first responsibility is not to make it easier for our children to sin, which is a negative kind of command, like stop or don't. And it seems simple, but it's actually a shocking way for Paul to begin when you think about the culture in which he was writing. Because in those days, the father could basically do whatever he wanted in his family, and nobody would have thought much of it. So uh, the father was the king, pretty much, culturally. And that means what they might have expected Paul to say was, children, don't provoke your father to anger. But never the other way around. Absolutely never. They typically would have thought in terms of the children's responsibility to the parents and not the parents' and especially not the father's responsibility to the children. And we've come a long way, maybe, but it still is a little like that in some families, isn't it? At least in the father's mind. That was definitely true where I came from in uh, South Africa, and it's a little different here, I guess, but at the same time, we are by nature self-centered, all of us, and so we're going to find ways to somehow make it about us, no matter where we live, especially if you have some power and feel like you have some authority. And so in America, we know that we're supposed to act like serving others is important, but the problem is that doesn't actually make sense if this life is all you have. If you live and die and go into the ground and that's it, then you should be thinking about your pleasure at every moment, absolutely. Even actually if you have kids, they need to increase your pleasure for it to make sense. And so if you're not a Christian in America, you're kind of conflicted when it comes to parenting because you know you are not supposed to just use your children for your own purposes. That's like frowned upon. But you don't really have a good reason not to. Not long term. Which is different for those of us who are believers because we've got a whole different story we're using to interpret the world. Because for one thing, we follow a crucified Savior. And for another, we're rising from the dead. And so because of the grace that we have been shown and because we have hope that we're not going to actually go into the ground and that's it, we are not going to spend all our time as leaders thinking about how people should treat us. Instead, we're going to spend time as leaders thinking about how we should serve them. In other words, as fathers in the home, we should not view our position of leadership as a privilege given to us, which we can use to force others to serve us for our pleasure. But instead, we want to use the privilege of our position as a leader as an opportunity to serve our family for God's pleasure, which is why Paul tells fathers that we need to think carefully about whether the way we're treating our children is tempting them, or the actual word that Paul uses, provoking them to anger. Are you parenting in a way that makes it easier for your children to become angry? Now, there's a parallel passage to this. That means a, a passage where Paul talks about the same issue. It's over in Colossians chapter 3, and there he says it a little differently. Paul says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, what does Paul say? He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And I think it's good to look at those two passages together because they're kind of the flip side of the same coin. And what I mean is that Sometimes people respond to poor fathering by losing heart, getting discouraged. And other times they respond by freaking out, getting angry. And sometimes the same person goes back and forth between those two responses, depending on how he's feeling that day. When you have a poor leader, you'll find the people he's leading either have little courage, 
They're just like resigned and scared, or they're in revolt and rebellion, which is important to understand because sometimes when someone becomes angry in a family or discouraged, we focus so much on the person who is getting angry and what they're doing wrong. And in a, a sense, of course, we should because the child who is getting angry has a responsibility not to get angry. That's a wrong response. But here's the thing. They are not the only ones with a responsibility because Paul is saying you can do things that make it easier for your children to become sinfully angry or discouraged. Do you hear that? Do you under, understand that? Do you, do you feel the responsibility of that? When you see a child who's throwing a temper tantrum or even an adult child who's angry, if it's your child, you need to ask yourself as a parent, and in particular as a father, am I to blame? Is there something that, about the way that I'm parenting that is provoking my child to act like this? Because I know we sometimes see children who are not getting angry and others who are getting angry, and we think, well, those two children just have different personalities. And of course, there's, there's some truth to that. We have, like, different temperaments. And so there is no question, absolutely no question, that some children struggle more with anger or discouragement. And there's no question that some children are more self-willed. We have nine children, so we've got lots of options in terms of temperaments. And there are uh, physical things at play, for sure, sometimes. But it's not always just that. There can be another element to this, and that's the way the parent's acting toward the child. As, as fathers, we have a big responsibility, and our first responsibility is not to make our children angry. We say, how would I do that? Can you get specific? Well, yeah, I, I can, but... Uh, if I do, it's going to take the rest of the sermon. So I'll just give you a list, and then I'm going to walk through some of this in a podcast. You know how I'm trying to do those podcasts. I'll try to walk through these on Friday in a podcast. But here's a list, 22 ways you can make your children angry. First, the first way to get somebody angry is to be simply angry yourself. Uh, angry parents have angry babies. And there are a lot of Proverbs that talk about that. Proverbs 15:18 is one. A second way to provoke your children to anger is to speak in harsh or pain-producing ways. Solomon puts it very simply, a harsh word stirs up anger. If your children are really harsh in their language and seem angry, you need to stop and evaluate the way you speak as well. A third way to make your children angry is to refuse to overlook mistakes or sins. Imagine, I always think, imagine someone who followed you around all day and every time you made a mistake, they pointed it out to you. And even worse, they pointed it out to you in front of everyone else. And then even worse, they kept bringing it up over and over and over again. I think for most of us, that would drive us crazy. And yet, that's the way some parents are with their children. Proverbs 10:12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over offenses. When you really love somebody, you are willing to overlook the way they hurt you. You don't have to bring up every sin or mistake. But when you don't love someone, you know what you do. You're constantly pointing out the errors that they're making. Proverbs calls that hate. If, if your children are angry, you might just ask yourself if you show them any grace. 
Are you one of those people that has to point out to your children every mistake they make and every time they do something you don't like? Fourth, another way Proverbs says you can make your children angry is by being so sure of yourself that you don't take other people's counsels seriously, other people's suggestions seriously. You know the always right dad, even when he's wrong? Somehow he can find a way to be right, even when everybody in the whole family knows he has no clue what he's talking about. In Proverbs 13.10, Solomon says, by insolence comes nothing but strife. And insolence there is referring to someone who won't take advice. When your children are angry, you might just look at yourself and ask, do you ever admit that you don't know or that you're wrong? A fifth way to make your kids hate you is to always be focused on your own personal best and to be so focused on your own personal best that you're willing to step over people and even your own children and, and sin to get it. And you can look at Proverbs 14, 17, but there are some people who are obviously selfish and when they don't get what they want, they blow up and everybody can see it. But there are other people who are a little more self-controlled. And so that, that, that doesn't mean that they're less selfish. It just means they're a little more sophisticated. And so they are scheming in their minds about how to use others to get what they want and make that other person feel like it's somehow the right thing. And so if your children are angry, it might just be a wake-up call for you to ask yourself if you're overly focused on yourself and what you want to the point where you barely notice how your kids are experiencing what they're experiencing and what's best for them. Six, you provoke your children when you always have to win every argument, even arguments that don't matter. I don't know, uh, we don't have a dog, but many of you have dogs. And if you've ever taken a dog for a walk, you know there are some dogs that have to chase anything that moves. They see like the smallest thing, like a little piece of grass blowing in the wind, and they are gone. When it comes to arguments and quarrels, there are people who are a little like that. They can't let an argument go. The writer of Proverbs talks about these kinds of people. It describes them as people who love quarrels. And they can argue with you about anything. You're like, uh, eight years ago, I was on a trip, and we took, you know, Ruba Gogo Road to get there. And they're like, it wasn't Ruba Gogo Road. <laughs> I can't believe he said it was Ruba Gogo Road. It was Charlie Street. And then it's like all of a sudden this long discussion and you're like, this absolutely doesn't matter. If you love quarrels, you shouldn't be surprised that you have a lot of strife in your life. And if you have a lot of strife in your life, you probably should step back and ask, is it because I like it? Seventh, when you're a mocker, you provoke your children to anger. And by mocker, I mean one of those guys who kind of gets some strange satisfaction out of making fun of his children. Small people enjoy making fun of small people. And uh, we often think that it takes two to quarrel. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes it actually only takes one to have a fight. When you have a person who enjoys hurting other people with his words, you're going to have angry children. Proverbs 22.10 says, you drive out a scoffer, and strife will cease. Another way uh, Proverbs brings up, and I think this is an interesting one, greedy parents often produce angry children. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25. 
We, uh, in our day, often sacrifice our children. We look down like in the ancient world when they would sacrifice their children on altars to their God. But parents often sacrifice their children on the, alt- on the altar of money. Just this desire for more and more. And this is a really hard one to see, actually. Uh, because in our culture, greed is normal. And so there are sometimes patterns in people's family life that they don't even look at. They can't even think to look at it because the culture has made it so, so normal for them to be greedy. So when we were in Africa, sometimes we would have uh, people um, having to separate uh, from their family. So we'd have somebody down in Pretoria and their, their wife and their kids were up in Zimbabwe for like years. And when they explained the, the reason, you could feel a lot of sympathy because, oh man, they were trying to survive up there. They're coming to this country that's more expensive. How are they gonna survive? So they come down, they live a difficult life for like three, four years, sending money back, back, back. But they're having like these huge problems, huge problems in their families and trying to figure out why are we having huge problems in our families? And sometimes you would sit with them and, and uh, talk and you'd be like, well, I wonder when was the last time that you saw your wife? You know, like in person and they'd be like, well, it's been like four years since I've seen my wife and my children. And you're like, oh, man, I really feel a lot of sympathy for you. But I kind of, it's going to be hard to be a dad if you're not with your kids, you know? And yet their situation and their culture made it very difficult for them to hear that. And, of course, you want to be loving and gracious and try to figure it out alongside of them. But I wonder sometimes if that isn't true in our culture as well. It's just something different. Like we've got families that are, are messed up, and we don't even think about simple solutions because greed has become so, so normal. Ninth, I'll just try to run through the rest of these, 22, sure. Uh, by saying mean things about them when you should be supporting them. Tenth, by making being the one in charge and getting other people to respect you the most important thing in life. Eleventh, by holding back the resources your children need to do well for purely selfish reasons. Twelfth, by returning evil for good. And which said, we'd be like, we would never do that. But you know, sometimes you'll come home and you're tired and your child will come up to give you a big hug. And you're like, oh, I just want time by myself. And what is that? Sometimes our response is, is actually literally returning evil for good. And so if that's a consistent pattern in our life, returning evil for good, it shouldn't be surprising that our children are angry. Uh, thir- uh, 13, not teaching your children wisdom, Proverbs 29, 17, and 18. Uh, not disciplining your children, plenty of Proverbs. Not taking your children's heart troubles seriously. Like, oh, what you, what you, what's the problem here? Why is that so difficult for you? If I was having to go to third grade and speak in front of the class, that's not scary for me. And they're like, well, but you're 47. Lying to your children and then making up silly excuses for your lies. Proverbs 26, 18. Talking without thinking about whether the timing is appropriate. Like a lot of times this will come up with correcting. Like they just did something that was very difficult for them to do. 95% of it was really good, but 5% was not so good. And they get done and the only thing we can think about is the 5% to tell them this is how they should do, do it better. And we don't think about what they might need in that moment. 
And sometimes it's uh, not motivated, sometimes it's motivated by concern for them, sometimes it's motivated by embarrassment. Because like we're in the crowd and we're like, oh, they said that, they mispronounced that word, that's so embarrassing for me. We shouldn't be surprised if selfishness produces selfishness and anger. Uh, 18th, letting your children do whatever they want to do all the time, regardless of whether it's good for them or not. Proverbs 27.5, not dealing with sin in a biblical way. Sometimes we're so, uh, so scared of conflict or deal, uh, we're just so lazy sometimes in terms of dealing with conflict that we actually make the conflict worse. Uh, not encouraging your children when they're worried, Proverbs 15, 4, Proverbs 15, 13. Uh, making a habit of overreacting when your children mess up, Proverbs 29, 22. And then setting unrealistic expectations for your children and refusing to be patient with them as they try to do the right thing, uh, which is a lot, I know. And believe it or not, I have more to say, <laughs> but listen for the podcast. Because right now, if you come back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, you'll notice that's actually not all to our responsibility. That's what we should not do. But what should we do? Paul, Paul writes, but, but bring them up. And let me kind of emphasize, bring them up, because that's active, which means you can't just be passive as a father. I know it doesn't seem quite as bad just being passive. Like, I'm not coming home and being a bad guy. I'm like a nice guy. What's the, what's the problem? But we all know if you have a garden, there's more than one way to ruin it. So one way to ruin a garden is to take a shovel or some other tool and you go out and you're like swinging that thing around and you're chopping and you're cutting and you're tearing until the whole thing is completely destroyed. But there's another way you can ruin a garden and uh, it's a little easier, it takes a little longer, but it's a little easier. You can ruin a garden by just doing nothing. If I sit on my couch and look outside of my garden and do absolutely nothing, it won't be long until I don't have a garden, just a bunch of weeds. And the same is true with your children. It's not enough to simply sit back and be a nice guy. As fathers, we must bring our children up. We don't just let them grow up, we bring them up. And I know it's normal in some families and definitely in some cultures for a father to be a little distant in terms of raising children and even a little hands off, but it's not normal biblically. As fathers, we have a responsibility to directly be involved in bringing our children up in the Lord. Now how? If you, if you look down at the text, Paul gives us one of the primary ways we as fathers are to bring our children up, and that is through teaching. What does he say? He says, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is one of our essential responsibilities. And, and what do those words mean specifically? Discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline has to do with education. Uh, it's encyclopedia, it's the second word of that, pedia, has to do with education. By saying that you need to uh, discipline your children, really saying, fathers, you have a responsibility to educate your children. And what do we mean by educate? Because are we talking about sending them to a really good school? Not really, actually. This is bigger than that. It has to do with a whole way of looking at the world. So when you grow up in a certain place, uh, the world's training you how to think about things. So you're like constantly being taught. I was uh, walking through a tunnel the other day on the way to the beach, and there were all kinds of signs on the wall. And uh, they were telling me what to do and how to act, mostly about the environment. But we're constantly being told, this is how you're supposed to think. 
This is how you speak to adults. This is what a wife does. This is the purpose of life. This is how you're supposed to work. And, and Paul is saying we can't just let that happen. We have a responsibility as fathers to help our children develop a biblical worldview. And maybe in our time nowadays, that responsibility is even more urgent for us because unbelievers have more opportunity to shape the way our children think than maybe ever before, which is why you go into a Starbucks and you talk to each barista and they all have the same opinions about everything. I'm, not, I'm just being silly, but teenagers, young people, often think the same things, basically. Like, uh, no matter who you talk to, you find they think, how I feel is what's real. You need to follow your heart. If God's loving, he can't judge. We're all products of evolution. I saw an interview, seven lies your children will believe unless you do something. You can look it up. But as parents, you have to do something. We can't just let that process happened to our child. We need to take primary responsibility and help shape our children to think biblically about their lives in this world. We need to educate. That's the first term, discipline. The second term is instruction. And that's a term that's often used to describe biblical counseling. It's from the Greek word nuthetic, and it's two words squished together, mind and put. It means to put in someone's mind. So fathers, you need to put truth in your children's mind. And especially it has to do with sitting down and talking to your child about the truth and how it applies to their lives, like getting specific. Children need fathers who will confront them with the truths of God's word because they're concerned about them making the changes God requires. We need to step up and show our children areas in their life that they need to work on, and not simply because we don't like what they're doing, but because of what God's word says, which I think is amazing if you think about it being able to, to do that as a dad. I love that God gave us this privilege of getting involved in the nitty-gritty of our children's lives and helping them live out what the scripture teaches, but it's definitely a big job. And so I can imagine someone saying, I know like, that I need to bring my children up, but where do I begin? Like, what do I teach? Begin with the gospel. <laughs> they need to know the gospel. There's a message in the scripture about what God has done through Jesus. They need to know that. Over and over and over and over, they need to know that. It's a simple message, and yet it can take the rest of your life to explain. And so we don't want our children to grow up without understanding the gospel. But I know that might sound a little too general and obvious, so let me get even more specific by going back to the Old Testament. Because one way that you can learn what to teach your children is by watching the wisest man pre-Jesus pre teaching his children in the book of Proverbs. And, and so you should take some time to study Proverbs as a dad and try to learn about teaching your children. But I thought I could give you a, like a head start by highlighting a few things that you see in Proverbs you need to educate your children in. And there's a lot more to this, but I'll give you a preview. First, you need to teach your children the fear of the Lord. So this maybe feels a little bit more like a Sunday school class, but it's important. You need to teach your children the fear of the Lord. And this may be one of the most important things to teach your children, because Solomon says, Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And think for a minute about that word beginning. What does beginning of knowledge mean? For one thing, beginning means like foundation. So without a right attitude towards God, it's like we don't even have the foundation for knowledge, which means as parents, 
we can work and work on the roof, like uh, helping them get good at all kinds of things, like getting into a good school and becoming educated and successful. But without a right understanding of God, they don't have a foundation. And so what good does being good at all that other stuff do them, really? Because the fear of God is like a foundation for living a wise life. And we can take that even a step further because uh, it also produces wisdom. So it's the beginning of knowledge, meaning it leads to knowledge. It's like the source. It's not just the foundation of knowledge. It's the source of knowledge. I don't know if you ever met someone who was really good at something that you wanted to be good at, and you ask, how did you start? Where did you begin? Because I might not be as good as you right now, but at least I can go back to the beginning. And maybe if I start where you started, I can end up at the same place. And wisdom, being really good at life, starts with a proper attitude towards God, which means as you look at your children, and maybe they're just little, they're just starting, they're not very wise right now, they come out fools, we all did, but if you can help them develop a right attitude towards God, you can know in the end that it's going to produce all kinds of amazing results, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I don't know, this is kind of simple, but I guess it helps to focus as a parent, because there are all kinds of things you can want and pray and work for as for your children. You could wish they were the best um, Rubik's Cube person in the history of the world. You could wish they were great at martial arts. There's lots of things that you could want for your children, but it helps to focus. Because you know, if your children learn to fear God, the writer of Proverbs says, it's going to have remarkable benefits. Like it's going to help them have a longer life. If you want your children to l live longer, Proverbs 10:27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. And Proverbs is wisdom, so it's just saying how the world normally works. And it does that by helping them stay away from the kinds of choices that could kill them, like sin. And the benefits of fearing God are not just negative. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. And I like that, satisfied. Do you want your children to rest, to be content? Because it's the fear of the Lord that produces that, which is why this is something that should be number one priority for us as dads. And you have a responsibility to teach them. They don't come out of the womb fearing God. Now, obviously, I know you can't make your children have the right attitude towards God, but there are things you can do. For, for example, you can work at giving them the knowledge they need in order to have a right attitude towards God. So if they're going to fear God, they need to know certain truths about God, and you want to work at helping them get to know who God is. You want to show them God is king. And you need to teach them what the king demands, God's laws. And you need to teach them to take God seriously. And one way you do that is by taking God seriously yourself. And another way you do that is by showing them you take God's law seriously, by helping them appreciate the consequences of disobedience, because there are consequences to sin. God is holy and angry at sin. And so you can help your children learn to fear God by talking to them about how God will judge sin. If we're going to guide our children to fear God, it begins by helping them get to know God, his complete character, which includes his wrath and his love, and especially the love he demonstrated at the cross. We need to help our children understand the cross, why the cross is significant, especially by showing them his great love as he poured out the punishment we deserve on his son. Second, you need to teach your children to listen. In Proverbs 1, 8, and 9, Solomon says, Hear, my son your father's instruction. And this is something he repeats over and over and over again. Listen. 
If you receive my words, Proverbs 2.1, and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, and I like that, making your ear attentive, working at paying attention and remembering and obeying. And over and over throughout Proverbs, he talks about the importance of listening to good instruction from your parents because he knows the benefits. A parent's instruction, Proverbs 1.9, was supposed to help the child live a beautiful life. Proverbs 2.5, it was key to him having a right relationship with God. When a father teaches his child biblical truth and the son grabs hold of it, it can help them live a prosperous and joyful life. Proverbs 3.2. Solomon felt like a lot hung on his child's ability to listen. And yet one reason he has to say listen so often is because he knows people aren't naturally good listeners. And especially children. You know, they're distracted when you're talking, we often uh, laugh when uh, one of our children used to ask us a question and like after the first sentence, they were on to another conversation. Like, wow, I only had two sentences there. I had to say that so fast. They're easily distracted when you're talking. They don't pay attention to the flow of what you're saying. They often hear something that you're not saying. They usually want to talk in the middle of your talking, and they're more interested in the things they're saying than what you're telling them, which is why you need to train them to listen. And it's a lot easier to do that if you started teaching them as young as possible. So maybe, let me talk to some of you who are younger parents now. If you really want your children to listen as teenagers, it helps to start teaching them to listen as children. And what does that mean exactly? Well, it means, let me give you a suggestion. It means when you're talking about something that matters, you should try to make it a habit from when they're young of having them actually stop what they're doing. It's hard for them to listen if they're doing something. Most of us can't do two things at once very well. And so if what you're saying is important, have them stop what they're doing and look you in the eyes because then you can see if they're actually at least trying to pay attention to what you're saying or not, and then tell them what you want to tell them. And once you're done, have them repeat it back to you to see if they mostly understood your instructions. And obviously, you don't have to do that every time, but while they're young, you're going to want to do it lots of times. Stop, look, listen, repeat. Because you want them to develop the habit of really paying attention to wisdom. Also, you know, if you want your children to be good listeners as they grow up, be a good listener. It's very difficult to teach listening when you're not willing to listen. And so I often think when I'm listening to a young child, this isn't about this conversation at age six. This is about developing a pattern. They know, Dad, I'm teaching them, this is how you listen to someone who's boring. <laughs> so that when they're older, they can listen to me when they think I'm boring because I've shown them this is how, how you listen. Third, you need to teach your children how to pick their friends. A after talking about the importance of fearing God and listening, this is pretty much where Solomon begins instructing his son in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 1. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And he spends all kinds of time giving specific instruction to his son about the kind of friendships to avoid, to the point where he talks about the kinds of things those friends will say to him and why what they're saying is foolish and why they need to reject it, which sets a pattern for us as, as fathers. We should spend time talking to our children about the importance of friendship. We want to help them understand why they should want friends, what it means to be a friend, what, what kinds of friends 
They should have how those friends impact us. And because we know the influence friends have, we should work on developing a good relationship with our children so we will actually know the kinds of friends they have. And that can be tough as they go to school and you're busy and they're busy, but that's why you want to work on your relationship with your children so that you'll know a little of what's going on in their life and so that you have the opportunity to talk to them about their friendships. And because friendships are important, you want to do what you can to get them in situations where they can develop good friendships with wise people. It's hard to be friends with wise people if you don't know any wise people. And maybe your children are shy or whatever, and so it can be challenging, but still, you want to help them get into situations where they'll be able to spend some time with wise people so that they'll be able to actually develop a relationship. And a great place to start is by being a good friend to your child yourself. Because I know that uh, as a parent, you're not just their friend, but that doesn't mean you can't be their friend. And I think you should really seek to be their friends and to create good relationships within the family. And this is, again, is, is something you want to start when they're young, because family is a place where you can learn friendship. And it takes learning because they're little sinners, living with other little sinners, and, so, uh, and sometimes big sinners. <laughs> And so they aren't always going to have an easy time getting along with each other, which is why you can't just sit back and then all of a sudden just yell when it gets too loud. But you have to get in there and start helping them learn how to look out for and love one another. This, look, conflict like, is so difficult even when you're older. So a good time to start teaching how to deal with conflict is like when you're four. You know, some of us have had... 30 years of really terrible habits when it comes to dealing with conflict. And nobody's gotten in there to instruct us. And it just feels so normal. We're like, there's no other way to deal with this conflict. But man, if we had started, if our parents had started with us when we were four, it would be a lot easier because we can get in there as parents with our children. That conflict seems huge to them, you know, like that uh, toy that was just taken. That, at that moment, seems like the whole world is destroyed. That guy has my toy. There's nothing I can do but scream. And so that's not just like, hey, oh my goodness, you, how can you scream about this toy? What a loser. No, it's like, oh man, this is a moment. I, I can get in there. Of course he's having a hard time. It's tough when somebody takes something that belongs to you and, and does it the way they did it. But now I need to help my children learn what do we do in this moment. I can't just magically think that somehow they're going to know what to do. And in the family, God's given them a unique opportunity to learn how to deal with conflict because it's kind of hard for, you know, it's going to be like 18 years before everybody gets away. And so they're kind of stuck with each other for a while. And that's great because it gives them the opportunity to work through things that they sometimes would not be willing to work through. And so you want to guide your children, even in the relationships they have with one another, by teaching them how to be unselfish, how to look out for each other, how to be excited when someone else does better. And as you're doing all that in their relationships in the family, you're, you're teaching them how to be a good friend. Fourth, we need to teach our children the consequences of choices, which is a massive theme in Proverbs. You can look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 and, and, and following, but just listen for a moment to the way wisdom speaks. Wisdom says, verse 23, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. 
Because I've called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I often say there's like two ladies in the Bible. There's wisdom and grace. And so grace, when, you, when something happens, grace comes over. It's like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. Get out, okay, let me give you out, let me give you out, let me give you out. Wisdom is a little tougher lady. You know, she comes over, you fall, she's like, did I tell you that was going to happen? That's what happens when you, when you don't listen. And, and what wisdom is saying here, that a time comes when you suffer for the choices you make. And so as Christians, we're big into grace. And you really want your children to know, no matter what, as long as you're alive, you can always come back to God, and, and he will forgive you, and you can come back to your dad. Like, you need to know that. I'm always there for you. But at the same time, they need to know sin is painful. Like, if you jump off a cliff, what's going to happen? You're going to get hurt. Grace is going to come up and be like, oh, I'm so sorry you jumped off that cliff. And wisdom's going to be like, huh, that's like a cliff. And that's not just true physically. That's also true spiritually. Actions have consequences. And your children need to learn that. You don't want them to grow up in a fairy tale world. Like, well, for 18 years of their life, they don't think actions have consequences. And then all of a sudden they get out into the world and they're like, whoa, actions have consequences. And one way you can teach them that actions have consequences is through your own personal testimony. When you've made a bad choice in life, talk to your children about some of those bad choices and what you experienced as a result. And another way, though, is by allowing them to experience the consequences of their sin. And this takes wisdom as a parent because you love your children. You never want them to experience any pain but sometimes they chose that pain. And God intends that pain to teach them a lesson. And so as a parent, you have to think and decide, is this a time when I need to step in and show grace and rescue my children? Because God does do that even with us. But also you should think, is this a time when they need to experience the painful results of their own choices so they don't go and make those choices again? And besides that, kind of passively stepping back and letting them experience consequences, as parents, there are times when we also need to actively step up and discipline our children for their choices. And Proverbs talks a lot about that. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is faithful to discipline him. And, you know, nowadays people get really upset about that because they think that the only thing that Solomon says about disciplining your child is spanking them. And that's not how Proverbs works, just so you know. You absolutely never, absolutely never have the right to abuse your child biblically. You can't sin to stop them from sinning. And Proverbs has a lot of other ways of disciplining besides physical discipline. It's not like Solomon was like, oh, one thing you do, this is the only thing you can do, spank them, spank them. What they do, spank them. What they do, spank them. There are a lot of other ways to discipline your children in Proverbs. If you look at the approach that the writer of Proverbs took, there's encouraging right behavior, there's motivating, there's warning, there's instructing, there's explaining about the negative consequences of sin, there's exhorting, there's rebuking, and then there also are times when it's loving to help your children feel a little pain for the sin they've committed, because sin is painful. And part of why you would ever discipline physically is so your children will begin to associate sin and pain. Because the reality is, when they leave the house, sin will bring pain. 
And if you don't teach them when they're young that sin is painful, they'll learn it when they grow up, and it may be too late, which is why physical discipline can be loving. If it's not love that's motivating you, don't do it. If you can't say, I'm disciplining my child because I love them and be honest about it, if there's something else in there, don't do it. Wait until you can do it right. But love will motivate you to discipline, which sounds funny, I know, because some people would say the reason they aren't punishing their children is because they love them, but the reality is the opposite, because eventually they are going to get disciplined for their sin. You know what I'm saying? And it's going to be worse than the discipline you might give them. My son is lazy, and I don't teach him that laziness is painful. What's going to happen when he gets older, he's going to be lazy, and as a result, he may lose a job and not be able to provide for his family, and that's, that's suffering. I like the way Proverbs 19.18 puts it. It says, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death, which means if you just let your children go and go and go apart from the absolutely, an absolutely shocking work of God, it's not going to turn out good. Because children aren't born wise, and they aren't born loving wisdom. They're born foolish and loving folly, which makes it scary. But Proverbs doesn't let us lose hope because it says there are something we can do, and that's to discipline our children, to lovingly discipline our children. And I stress lovingly because there's like a lot of terrible discipline out there that does damage. Usually because you're doing it because they're annoying you. (laughs) And it's like, oh, it's the last thing. What can I do here? Which is not what the Bible wants. At all. This is never about anger. Never. Instead, we're talking about disciplining your children for their good because they're sinning and because you love them and want to help them stop. And Solomon's saying, if you're going to be a good guide to your children, there may be times where it involves more than just verbal instruction. You're going to have to help them learn that choices have consequences, either by stepping back and letting them experience the results of what they've done or by stepping up and applying an appropriate amount of physical pain so they'll stay away from sin in the future. And uh, there's more. We can keep going for sure. I think I'll need to do a podcast on this too because there's, there's just too much in Proverbs. That, for example, you need to talk to your children about sexual purity. There's a lot of this in Proverbs. You need to talk to your children about how to handle money. There's a lot of that in Proverbs. You need to talk to your children about how to communicate. But you know, being a father is, uh, is a privilege and a responsibility. And so uh, those of us who aren't fathers, we look at what the scripture teaches, we should be praying for our fathers. And those of us who are past this stage of fathering younger children, we know this is hard. And so we should come alongside and see how we can be an encouragement. But fathers, it's Father's Day. And I wanted to encourage you that it is your responsibility to bring your children up which means you can't just sit back and be a nice guy. You need to step up and be a nice guy. You need to step up and love your children by actively educating them and confronting them and helping them think biblically about all these different kinds of areas in in life. And you need to get good at it. Like, when they're young, there's a different way you instruct them than when they're old. Like, this is one of your big responsibilities, right? Like, so you want to get skilled at it and recognize, okay, when I'm teaching a young child... How I teach that young child, obviously, is going to be different than how I teach an older child. So what would it look like to teach different stages differently? If you want to really do something great in your life, learn how to bring your children up. Because even though we know God is big and good and doesn't have to use you, he does use you. 
So if you don't teach them the fear of God, don't be surprised if they learn to ignore him. If you don't teach them to think and be wise, don't be surprised if they learn to be fools from the world. If you don't teach them how to pick their friends, they're going to develop friendships that will do them damage. If you don't teach them sexual purity, they're going to learn something about sex from this world. If you don't teach them the danger of sin, it will be that much easier for temptation to deceive them and destroy them. And I know this might be a little intense for those of us who are older and like we're looking back and we feel regret. And so I want to encourage you that we can be so thankful that we're not saved by being a perfect father. And our children are not saved by us being a perfect father. We're saved by grace because of what Jesus did. And we serve a God who is amazing at taking mistakes and evil and turning them to good. He, he, he's been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And so as a father, if you're an older father, looking back, don't allow those regrets to just destroy you, but take those regrets to Jesus, your good, good savior, and experience the grace he has for fathers who have messed up. And yet because we've been shown so much grace, we take our responsibilities seriously, and this is one of our primary responsibilities as, as fathers. What do we do? Fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray that God makes us a church filled with uh, godly, godly fathers. Lord, uh, it's good to come to you. This is a little different than our normal study in the Gospel of Luke and more kind of do this, don't do that, but we, we recognize that the reason uh, we can think about this is because you've saved us, and even thinking about it in the specifics like this is a way of you showing us grace, because uh, we don't have to kind of go around with absolutely no clue what to do. Do I need to get my kids into a good school? Do I need to get them great at sports? Just kind of running this way and that because we have no direction in terms of what you want from us. You have been kind and you have spoken and you haven't made it really super complicated. It doesn't actually matter if our kids grow up in a big house or it doesn't actually matter if they're amazing at sports. It doesn't actually even really matter what school they go to. What matters in terms of us being faithful is that we need to not provoke them to anger. We need to teach them and, and, and bring them up. And so, Lord, we ask. We can't do that. Even though it's so simple, it's right there. God, we all look at our lives as individuals and see failure after failure after failure. And we thank you that you're a God who shows us grace. But we also ask that you'll just help us to take steps forward and to be fathers who help each other be better at fathering. And uh, Lord, thank you for being such a good father. And you give us discipline and instruction. And that's even what you're doing uh, this, this morning. And so we pray that we'll imitate you well. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.